Who's wrong and who's wronger? In this corner, followed by Millions James, the exploding unicorn, Breakwell. And in that corner, ignored by Millions, Steve Dash, Rinko Levers. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wrong and Wronger. I am El Jefe, the boss, Steve Olivas, and he is James the Gooper Breakwell. And we come to you every week with a podcast that nobody cares about. But we don't care that nobody cares because James, you and I care. How are you doing today? Okay, I first of all want to dispute the fact that I, in fact, care. If either one of us cares, what? it's going to reflect very poorly on both of us with the product we are currently putting out. <laughs> I don't understand the vitriol, James. I'm just being good-natured over here, and you fire back like you're insulted. I, I, I can only take this with some silent dignity. I, I, well, you can do one. Actually, I don't think you're capable of either of those, those things, either silence or dignity. That's, a, that's two strikes in one sentence. But that does segue in nicely into our topic today, hating Ooh. people for their success. So obviously there's a lot of animosity coming from you at me what? because of how successful I am and how jealous of me you are. But what actually prompted this is Tom Brady. We were, were talking about that, and, and Steve posited that it's very hard to hate Tom Brady, which I would say it's not that hard, but it, it is a little complicated. So why don't you why don't you lead us down that path ever so awkwardly, Steve? Well, Tom Brady, from what I understand, played in the Super Bowl yesterday. Did you not watch and it I at all? I understand this because uh, James, in a very condescending tone, told me I'm the only person on earth who doesn't watch the Super Bowl, which actually he might be accurate with that. <laughs> but Tom Brady... <laughs> Tom Brady just keeps freaking winning. And so he becomes, and, and he, look, he's got everything on paper that makes him detestable for everyone who has some self-loathing or some angst about their station in life. He's tall, he's handsome, he's rich, he's talented, he's got a great looking wife, he's got cool kids. But, and he just keeps winning Super Bowls. So it's like, if ever you wanted to hold someone up for effigy of everyone around him, it would be Tom Brady. But James, unlike you and me, Tom Brady conducts himself in a way that's very difficult to detest. And you and I, you in particular, I'm only saying me so that you don't feel all alone, even though I don't mean it, but you could take a page out of Tom Brady's playbook. So I, I have many, many thoughts on Tom Brady, because obviously he was the arch enemy of the Colts. Have we been disconnected? No, do you hear me? I hear you. Oh, I can hear you now. It was your turn to talk and you didn't, which is rare. I, I figured you'd either died or something horrible I, happened. I, I definitely was talking. You might have cut out there for a second. The phone lines were sparing you from my my biting wit, but that's okay because we're gonna we're just gonna keep going. But anyway, but, I'm sorry. Yes, but anyway, the Patriots were the arch enemy of the Colts, and they beat us more often than not. It was extremely frustrating to see that. But then I. It was hard to figure out where did my hatred lie. Did it lie with the Patriots franchise itself, which is just a you know a, a faceless organization that just rakes in money, or did I hate Bill <laughs> Belichick, their coach, or did I hate their quarterback? And it turns out I mostly hate their coach and their organization because when they put Tom Brady out to pasture, when they said you are too old for us, I instantly and instinctively 
always side with the old man who gets screwed over by his company. There's just something in me that does that. And so this last time around for the Super Bowl, the one last night, I was, was for the first time in my life rooting for Tom Brady just to stick it to the Patriots. And I feel like if he can win without them, that makes the Patriots look for, look worse. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I've, I've both rooted for and against him. Uh, but I have a theory about him, about why he's uh, he's so likable to so many. I think, and why he's so frustrating. I think the reason he's so frustrating is it seems like everything always breaks his way. He's had so yeah. much good fortune. And in all sports, there's an element of luck. How, how is the ball going to bounce? How is the official going to call it? And I think yeah. part of the problem is that he's just too good looking. You know, there are people oh. in business <laughs> or wherever else who sometimes they just get away with things because they've got that persona and they've got that look. You know, you get pulled over for a speeding ticket and if you're a really good looking person, you've got a better chance of getting off. Or if you're in a courtroom and you get sentenced, you're, you're more likely to be acquitted. You're more likely to get a lighter sentence. Like beauty kind of, it trickles down through all those things. And he seems like time and time again, some of the worst officiating examples are, are calls that have benefited Tom Brady in major, major ways. And I think part of that is we just, I think the referees have an inherent bias towards attractive people. And he gets, and I don't think it, I don't think it's imaginary that he gets these breaks. I think he gets these breaks because people who look like him always get those kind of breaks. And that is what causes the jealousy and the frustration, especially if you've been a Colts fan for many years. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Peyton Manning is one homely looking dude, <laughs> by the way. He's so, not getting those breaks. <laughs> he ain't getting those breaks. <laughs> I don't know. So you're saying when Tom Brady kind of jogs in slow motion to the referee, the camera cuts away to his face and there's a little twinkle and a bing in his eye and then he smiles and another bing comes off his pearly white teeth and the referee is immediately enraptured I by his good looks was reaching for the flag and then pulls his hand back please I, tom i think in okay you you as a psychologist know all about you know inherent biases and you know snap decisions basically we can make decisions before our conscious mind is aware of them and i think if you see somebody attractive you're predisposed to like biologically your body says this person should be an ally because they they look attractive they can help me get mates they do all these things he's somebody you want to be your friend and so when you have to make a split second decision in a high pressure environment if somebody's just a little bit better looking it might make you like them just a little bit more i think over time that can make a huge difference difference there probably is i don't think it's good looks though and i'll tell you what i mean okay all of us i know we're not supposed to profile or judge but all of us do all the time it's yes. how humans survive we have to take in a lot of information and make a quick decision mm -hmm. but i do think that if you have the reputation of being a winner or being oh. a superstar Michael Jordan had this going too, that he could take 12 steps and never get called for traveling. And some of that is they want him to fly through the air like Superman because it helps the NBA. Mm -hmm. But some of it too is in the ref's mind, they think, well, that's freaking Michael Jordan, man. Look at him go. So there is something to be said that all the work Tom Brady puts in and all of his innate talent, all of his winning does build up a little bit of, it, there's like a bank of trust that the referees have that Brady's going to do the right thing. And if it seems on the edge, they're going to go with the benefit of the doubt rather than not. Yes. And he's just a, a very beautiful, beautiful man. 
we have uh, we have made many comments about his attractive good looks. People are definitely going to have some questions about us by the end of this. But again, the example you held up, like Peyton Manning is my guy. I love like my two heroes in life are Abraham Lincoln and Peyton Manning in that order. But I, I will agree that you know Peyton Manning is not a beautiful man. You can you can look at that as a heterosexual man and make that judgment. He's he's an awesome, oh, yeah. incredible human being, but he's not going to win anything yes. in his looks. And you just all those times there would just be those little breaks that make a difference in game and Tom Brady would get them and, and Peyton Manning wouldn't. It just drove me crazy. Uh, but yeah, I mean at this point I mean, Tom Brady's obviously the best there is. And whether he got the lucky breaks or whether he didn't, he certainly capitalized on them. He did not waste it. And that's and that comes down to hard work and preparation too. That if things break your way, are you just gonna squander it away and throw another interception? Or are you gonna are you going to go through? I mean, he has to be like the best person in high high pressure situations ever. Last night in the game you definitely didn't watch. They uh, after the, at the end of the first half, uh, the Chiefs <laughs> left a minute on the clock and they gave Tom Brady the ball. And it's like, of course he's gonna score a touchdown in a minute. Of course he's going to do it. And he went down and he did it. Because I watched him do that a million times against the Colts. You don't give the man a minute <laughs> on the clock with nothing to lose. He's always going to score. And I, I wonder what it would be like to have that kind of confidence in high-pressure situations. Because I think I can kind of talk myself up. I can I can do well in situations where I absolutely have to do well because there's not a choice. But I don't necessarily enjoy pressure. Now you, you go in front of tons of people all the time, or at least you used to back in the old days before everything got shut down yeah. do you feel pressure when you go in those environments or are you comfortable and how, how do you feel about pressure in general uh i don't like it in fact the worst time for me is about 10 minutes before showtime because really? i'm a mess i'm pacing i'm anxious and i actually retired from the road for a year about five or six years ago because i couldn't stand how i felt before going on huh. stage once I'm up there, I'm okay. And you've experienced this too, I think. Once you're kind of through the portal, you just kind of get into your thing and you do it. You've been in front of people enough to know. But all of the lead in, and so until I sort of learned how to control my brain and then control my body ahead of time, it was awful. And I, I'm too much of an introvert, which sounds strange <laughs> given what you and I do. But I, I can't stand being in front of people. I, so anyway, uh, how about you? I, I'm first of all, I'm legitimately shocked that you can't stand uh, being in front of people because you do that for most of your living. Like that, this isn't yeah. like a side project for you. Like for me, I every <laughs> once in a while go in front of people, and uh, but but you like this is this is your thing, and to find out you hate it is is genuinely surprising to me. I guess I should just always assume you have more weaknesses than I think. So this is a skill I credited to you <laughs> and I should not have done that. I also get nervous before. I like and Early on, the first few speeches I gave, I got super, super, super nervous. But every time I did it, I got a little bit less nervous. And I re eventually I realized it's not really that different than these podcasts or these videos I make. I'm just kind of talking to myself. And I, I've, I've kind of accepted that if I screw up, I can probably think fast enough on my feet to dig my way out of it. Uh, but again, it's been a while since I've done it, so I don't know. I, I suspect it's kind of a skill where if, if you're given 60 speeches in a year, you really build up a thick skin and you're fine. But then if you take a couple of years off, I bet you have to go and kind of rebuild it. I bet, I bet you have to kind of grind it down. But the fact that you give a thousand speeches a year and still get nervous beforehand thinks maybe there's, makes me think maybe there's no like lower limit. Maybe you get to a certain point of improvement and the nervous just doesn't that just doesn't get any better after that 
there's something in psychology called the Yerkes Dodson law. <laughs> it's amazing. I actually remember some stuff from my undergrad, James. But what the Yerkes Dodson law basically says is the more complicated the task, the less emotion is required to do it. So oh. in other words, it's about motivation. If your emotion, like for Tom Brady is what I was thinking, and for what you and I do, because when you get in front of people, it is kind of complicated. You're trying to keep track of the tempo of the audience. You have mm -hmm. your speech in your head. You have different things that come into your mind that you're gonna improvise on the spot because it just happens to be right there. You've got uh, the heat, you've got your fatigue, you've got, if you're a little hungover from the night before, I'm talking me, not you. But the point is, there's a lot going on. So we really need to control our emotions in those moments. So uh, to just bring this to Tom Brady for a second and then back to you and I, for Tom Brady, what he does is remarkably complicated. He mm -hmm. is analyzing constantly and he has to be completely in control of his emotions. The linebackers, on the other hand, what they do is much simpler than what Tom Brady does. They seek and destroy. And so that's why before the game, the linebackers are trying to rev themselves up. They are jumping around, they're screaming, they're banging their heads in lockers because getting themselves motivated and charged can mean you are open throttle emotionally. So anyway, coming back to what we do, that uh, if you're one that's kind of prone to being a little anxious on the or in the first place, like uh, your emotions are running a little, and I'll just you say for myself, my emotions were running a little more high or wide open than I needed them to, to accomplish the task I was about to engage in. So I had to learn to kind of control that and pare that back in because of the Yerkes Dobson law. Huh, that is uh, legitimately interesting, which is always surprising coming from you, but <laughs> <laughs> you gotta keep the insults going. People are gonna tune out. We can't be teaching them actual facts. I, I think I have um, one extra thing going for me when I give speeches, and that's that I've been, you know, I've been doing comedy writing for years and years and years in this comedy realm, and I never hear people laugh, like at all. You know, you just, I'm sending it out in silence. And most of the time, I don't even read the comments. Sometimes I don't even check the numbers my jokes are doing. If I, 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 so like, I'm just launching stuff into the void and, and never hearing anything back. So if I go up on stage and give a really bad speech and hear even a tiny, tiny bit of laughter, that's like a thousand times more laughter than I hear at any other point in my life. Like, that was amazing. I killed it out there. And so the bar is super, super low. Like, I didn't even know, like, if I go up there and I heard, like, total silence, it's like, well, that's just what I deal with every day. So this is, that was just normal. I'm okay with that. <laughs> you cannot give a bad speech, though. I'm guessing. Have you ever laid an egg in front of people? I bet it has never I, I've happened. I've never for you. like completely struck out, but I will say yeah. this: the two first two speeches I um, I gave after I, I published a book or as I was publishing them, I, I was legit drunk or on the borderline of it. Like I was nervous. <laughs> so the first time was at a library convention up in Chicago, and. Uh, they, my publisher had me go up there because I could just drive up there and drive back. And beforehand, uh, they and they had somebody from the publishing place meet me there. And they're like, would you like a drink? I was like, yes, I would like a drink. So yes, I, I had that. And I had like a pint of beer. And then we went up there and I was like giving a speech at like a wine and cheese thing. And they pour the wine. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have some of that. So I went up there and I felt great. 
And the second one I gave, I flew out to Philadelphia to give a speech at a library. And I ended up giving, like, so I, I went, like, you know, halfway across the country. And I probably spoke in front of 25 people. It was another library, but a very, like, prestigious library that has the budget for these kind of things. And so I went in there to give this speech. Like, would you like a beer? I was like, sure. And they let me take it out there on the podium. So the first two times, I kind of had that. But once I was out there with it, I kind of regretted it. It was like, you know what? This is this is really a crutch. I don't need this. I've practiced the speech. I can do that. Now, the, the, the closest I came to buy was was not my fault because of course nothing is ever my fault uh, but the biggest the speech in front of the biggest audience I ever gave and probably the longest speech I ever gave was at dad 2.0 in New Orleans a few years back and um, tell me about it, yeah. I practiced and practiced and practiced and was so ready and about two weeks before the speech I lost my voice and it never came back I, <laughs> I went I got on the plane in New Orleans I'm like surely by the time I get out there I will be able to speak I could not speak. I was like, I was like hoarse whisper shouting at people the whole time. But like, and like that's like, if you think about like your like cold sweat nightmares, like you practice so much for a speech and then you can't even talk. And that's exactly what happened. And that was probably the most comfortable I've ever been giving a speech. And it's probably been the speech that was most the best received. And maybe it was the best received because people couldn't hear me. But I, you know, I just, I figure after that, like I could never under any circumstances give a speech that would be under harder conditions than that. So if I can give a speech without a voice, I'm probably going to be okay at anything else that life throws at me. You know, part of it too, and by the way, of course you got sick. That You were so nervous your immune system gets <laughs> compromised. All that cortisol is killing off those white blood cells. But part of you being anxious, and I take comfort in this for myself, is good. Because that means you're concerned about doing a good job. Like you're not just going to half-ass it out there. You're really prepared and you're going to, you want to kill it. So yeah. I like part of that. But uh, the other thing about you, James, that makes me think you can never do a bad job, and of course you did great at 2.0, Dad 2.0, is because for, for as pompous as you want people to think you are, you are a remarkably humble person <laughs> in real life. And I think that ingratiates you to the audience. And so when you come up a little compromised because you're croaking your words out, the audience wants to take care of you, like they like you. And uh, this sort of wraps back to Tom Brady, too, that likability is an asset that I don't know if you can coach people into it. Like you, much as I hate to compliment you, Breakwell, but you really have it naturally. It comes out just in the way you interact with people. I uh, I don't know how to feel about that. You just gave me a legitimate compliment. It wasn't left-handed <laughs> in any way. I'm going to continue to mull over that for the next day to try to find the trap in it. <laughs> Uh, but I think, well, you touched on a little bit. I, you know, the, the, there's always the pity factor. That definitely helps. And my comedy, my comedy is heavily dependent on self-deprecation. But I think really all good comedy is. Because if it's not dependent on self-deprecation, it's basically just bragging. And, like, I've had people, like, somebody once sent me, like, a 2,000-word like a, a email about how I shouldn't be so hard on myself. And it's like, that's just, that's how comedy works. I'm not going to come out here every day and be like, let's talk about how amazing I am. Like, what? what what is that? I don't know, but it's not comedy. So, I mean, you know, of course, all of that is played up for, uh, you know, effect and all that. But I, I think also, especially the way you and I do things, they always say that success changes you. Maybe we just haven't had enough success yet to become jerks. <laughs> I would jerks. know, but yeah. I hope it does. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm sick of being like, like I this. I hope it changes me into a successful person. <laughs> But like, you know, it's it's real easy to stay humble. It's like, yeah, you have all these followers online and then you walk out the door and nobody knows who you are. You know, you write all these books, you throw them out in the world and you go back and you still do your day job. Like, like the, 
humility is not in short supply. It is, it is thrust upon you. You would have to try very, very hard in this industry to avoid humility. I don't think I'm capable of dodging it. Um, as far as likability being teachable, I think I, I ranted to you a little bit uh, at the end of our last podcast when you were trying very hard to get off the phone with me. But there was that book I read about the charisma myth. And it, it was, uh, I think it was literally t- the title, The Charisma Myth. And it basically went in and it said that uh, charisma, well, it might come naturally to a few people, just like, you know, a few things come naturally to everybody. For most people, it's just a skill like anything else. And it's a skill you can learn. You can legitimately come up with a few simple things that you can practice to make people like you more. And that kind of blew my mind because I just assumed uh, that you aside, uh, I'm not like in person, if I'm not on stage performing, I probably don't come off as terribly open or likable. I probably come off like you as a bit of an introvert. <laughs> oh, I, could, I could be, I could be. He included, by the way. <laughs> So, but you know, I, I think we're probably both that way too. Well, we love performing. We, we love the adulation. We love the attention. We equally love avoiding attention, which is a really <laughs> weird juxtaposition. When I'm out in public or doing something, it's like, do I really want to go meet everybody in the world and be super outgoing? No, not necessarily. But apparently you can, you can kind of trick yourself into doing it so that people like you. And in turn, you start liking to do that stuff. So maybe, maybe we just need to practice more to become less unlikable. James, I, well, first of all, <laughs> there's there's something to be said for being unlikable. I mean, <laughs> you and I have built this podcast empire off of it right here. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I agree with what you just said. When I come off the stage, man, I'm tired. And if the, the worst scenarios for me are geographically, if where I'm at is situated such that I have to walk through the audience to get out of there, like I need an exit stage left so I can just duck out. Because if I have to go through people, I just put my head down and kind of walk with purpose. Now, if someone engages, I'm friendly. If they want me to sign a book or take a picture Mm -hmm. with them or something, which believe it or not, does happen quite often, James Wow. But uh, otherwise, I don't want to encourage that kind of stuff because I don't want to hang out and chit-chat afterwards. I want to get something to calm my nerves and just get the hell out of there. Yeah, maybe maybe we are, actually. Because it seems, it seems like we're so extroverted. Maybe we are true introverts because I think if you're an actual extrovert to the core, that kind of thing energizes you. Sure, and well, it's absolutely. Like, and it's awesome. It's an awesome feeling in the world to, to do awesome in a speech and get all that stress out and you've got it behind you. And then at the same time, I... I I also was like, you know what I really want to do? Just go back to my hotel room and just lay down. I'll revel that this was a success, but I need to cut off public contact right now before I screw this up. You, you nail the speech, and then you're walking out of there, and you're accidentally a jerk to somebody, and you ruin the whole thing. And that's the part that goes viral. It's like, yeah, let's just let's just get out of here and be done. And that whole uh, like walking out like past everybody, that, that's tough too. It's like, what are you gonna do? Like, you know, go up and glad hand your way out of there, shake everybody's hand, and give them high fives, or just. Like, or like, you gotta, you gotta time it so you can like sprint down the aisle before the applause dies down. And I've got to, so otherwise you're like, I say, look over there to the right, and then I run down the left hand side. Yeah. So otherwise you're like, they finish clapping, and then you just slowly walk down in silence as everybody looks at you. Well, now I have a whole I'm be carried out on a gondola. <laughs> now I have a whole new nightmare scenario to think about. Now I'm never gonna be comfortable in a speech again. I don't, I don't want to pull a Steve and just walk out in the middle of everybody. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know how this all relates to the Super Bowl, but this has been great. 
apparently we have a lot to say about pressure and not doing that well with it. How how about that? Which is, you know, maybe, well, that, and maybe that's why we have such an easy time with this podcast because there's just legitimately, I cannot imagine a more low pressure environment. A podcast we get no money from that nobody listens to. Like we, don't, we don't have to keep anybody amused but ourselves. And sometimes we even fail at that. And that's okay. There are zero consequences in this environment. <laughs> I'll tell you, though, I think just for the two people who do listen to us, this should be interesting because this is a part of performing I don't think many people talk about. Like, this is really behind the scenes and behind the eyeballs kind of stuff. That is true. I, and I guess I've never asked you this stuff before. I just assumed you were at home on the stage. I, I assumed that was, like, where you wanted to be. So uh, I guess now I have a new uh, weakness of yours to exploit. I will add that to my arsenal <laughs> and pull it out at the appropriate time. Well, before we exploit any more weakness for no profit whatsoever, (laughs) except for our own savage amusement, let us wrap this thing up. You've come to the end of another glorious and yet somewhat tedious episode of Wrong and Wronger. And until we meet again next week, you'll be here because we will be. I'm talking to both of you. This is Steve, Dr. Steve Olivas for James the Exploding Unicorn Breakwell saying thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and remember as always, two wrongs can't make a right.